Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I want to get to right away to our next guest. A lot to cover here. Abhay Deshpande, founder and chief investment officer of Centerstone Investors. Abhay, thanks so much for joining us here. We got a lift to the market here, but you know, I'm going to say year to date, one of the primary characteristics of this market has been uncertainty slash volatility. Um, is how, how do you deal with that in your portfolio? It just seems like we're getting major, major moves. Um, pretty much on a daily basis, we have a VIX at just above 30. How do you deal with that in your portfolio? Uh, well, hi, uh, well, good morning, first of all, and thanks for having me. And at Centerstone, you know, we're bottom-up investors, so we go stock by stock. Um, one, of the, um, one of the biggest, uh, you know, I guess, risks to a portfolio this year has been, you know, whether or not you have exposure to Russia, which we don't. Another uh, risk that's kind of, uh, you know, you can see it overnight, for instance, in China, is how much exposure do you have to Chinese stocks, and we have zero. Um, and, you know, so in that sense, even though, yeah, the markets are down a lot, um, our funds are, I mean, down, you know, slightly. Um, so for the, the most part, you know, just being away from the riskiest parts of the market, it works against you, for instance, in 2021, where those, many of those stocks did uh, fine or even better than fine. And then, you know, in the other, other uh, environments, it's good to be away from risk. And our style is such that we, you know, we tend to be somewhat cautious when it comes to balance sheets and management teams. So uh, in that sense, well, you know, just kind of by let, coincidence almost, we don't have that much exposure. Let me ask you then about uh, growth, because I'm assuming that you're exposed to the economy, the U.S. economy. Um, what kind of growth do you expect? Are you worried about a recession next year? Yeah, I think uh, what to me, and you know, take this with a grain of salt because I'm a stock picker. I'm not a geopolitical strategist or whatever. But this this reminds me a lot of uh, September 11th um, in the sense that the U.S. economy or the global economy was already weakening in in 2001 uh, when that shock happened. And then there was a you know response, the market rebounded, but then the ramifications of a, a weakening economy with a slowdown and, and whatnot um, meant that the stock market had trouble for another year, even a little bit more. And I kind of uh, you know so far the playbook of the late '90s and early 2000s has been you know the one to use, and I would not be surprised that there's some sort of peace deal or something later this week. Uh, the stock market has some lift. But the damage has kind of been done. I mean, we've got a, a massive amount of inflation pressure. It's just been added to um, the economy's already weakening. Uh, the stock market, you know, in Europe, the stock market's at 12 times normalized earnings with a 3% yield. So one could make a case that they're somewhat, in, um, you know, better positioned to handle this. The U.S. market's at 20 times earnings with a 1.5% dividend yield. Is, less, is, is there, Abe, is there, uh, are there opportunities that you can, tell us about that you can share with us as bottoms up stock pickers is something that you know you're, you're pumped about as you come into work on this monday we have a, a whole bunch of companies that are that are so i'll just focus on some that are in the united states or that are easy to buy in the u.s markets um, we have a bunch of companies that that i like we where we have um you know they're kind of isolated they're the, the outcome is more dependent on management's decision making rather than interest rates and what happens in russia 
uh, you know, one good example is CDK, which is a software uh, company that provides, um, you know, basically customer management, inventory management tools to the auto um, dealerships in the United States with a big, you know, 50, 60% market share, depending on which region. Another company is Perigo, which um, I've talked about before, but, you know, they're recovering now. They're a, a, they're a manufacturer uh, of, of, uh, of private label uh, generic drugs in in the U.S. Uh, convenience store, like the basically the Tylenols and stuff that you would get off-brand in a CVS or an Amazon. They they're again about 50, 60 percent market share. What's the ticker? Uh, that was P. Uh, so that's Papa Romeo Golf Oscar, and the other one is uh, Charlie Delta Kilo. Okay, are you in the reopening trade kind of business? Because I just spent a week out in Utah skiing. And it is wide open out there. The economy's ripping. It is the best attendance year they've had uh, ever. Um, are you in that reopening trade? That's nuts. Yeah, I'd say directly we're about 25% exposed to re reopening stocks, another 25% that would be considered some hybrid, but mostly self-help companies that are uh, undergoing some, um, you know, like these two companies that I mentioned, undergoing a lot of management uh, sort of uh, – uh, help um, to to reorient these companies that have also been somewhat buffeted by COVID. So roughly 50% we have exposed to the um, more of a reopening story, and that's globally, not just in the United States, but in Europe, uh, parts of Asia. Uh, and the remainder of the portfolios are essentially, you know, we have gold, uh, treasury bond or treasury uh, notes, uh, cash, <laughs> Some growth type companies, but uh, but it, again, but it sounds like you like companies that are that have sort of self-reflected and reassessed and are uh, executing on that yeah i mean i would much rather have a business where the outcome is dependent on their own actions rather than external factors right and that's, right. that's the bulk of our portfolio all right abe thank you so much we always appreciate getting a few minutes of your time abe Dishpande, founder and chief investment officer of centerstone investors We want to get right to our next conversation. This will be the conversation of the morning, if not the day, on Bloomberg Radio. Markian Lubkivsky, advisor to the Minister of Defense of Ukraine, joins us. He is in Ukraine as we speak. Uh, Mr. Lubkivsky, uh, thank you so much for joining us. We'd really appreciate getting your perspective. What is the absolute latest on the ground from Ukraine? Thank you. Thank you so much for having me at Bloomberg. Uh, and the situation in Ukraine remained very hot. So uh, a lot of Ukrainian cities are under attack of Russian aviation, Russian missiles. So uh, this morning, Kyiv was attacked with the missiles. And uh, this is terrible because they are, they are trying to, to reach uh, civil facilities. So, and... Uh, uh, again, Kharkiv is in, in terrible situation, and the, but the most, the most dangerous and the, the, the tragic, I would say, situation is in Mariupol because Mariupol is blocked totally, but by Russian troops, and the the situation there is 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 very hot. So, uh, are just you, for your information, are you having any success um, getting refugees out, evacuating cities, or are the Russians continuing to? Um, you know, bomb those uh, those passageways. We are trying to establish so-called humanitarian corridors from all blocked cities, or from cities which are under attack. So we 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 managed to establish around twelve such corridors, and we are trying to get 
people, uh, Ukrainians from that cities to the to the western part to of Ukraine to Ukrainian border. So, but uh, these people are under attack of of Russians. They are shooting on them. Mm. Yesterday, uh, American journalist was killed also because of of of, of Russians. Uh, Russians attack him. They they shot on him. And the situation is not so easy. So we are trying to assist our people. So for for Ukrainian uh, for Ukrainian government, the most important thing is to protect our people to rescue them. And that, that was also the, the point number one during today's negotiations with the Russian delegation. So, Mr. Lubkivsky, we're, you are now in your third week of this battle, this war. And based upon what you've learned so far and based upon the conversations that you and the uh, Ukrainian government have had with the Russian delegation, what do you think Mr. Putin really wants? <laughs> I think that Ukraine, only the, the, some, the, only the stage in his uh, uh, intention to get more. I think that he what he wants to reestablish Soviet Union and nobody can be secure right now. So my 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 forecast is 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 very pessimistic. So he will not stop bombing and attacking Ukraine after Ukraine will will fall, but uh, we will fight to the end. Yes. He will go he will go to Baltic states to Poland probably to Moldova. So this is his intention, and this is terrible. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what we're hearing is that the Ukrainian defense has been much stronger than President Putin had expected. Um, how, uh, how, how long can you preserve that strength? Because clearly Russia has so much um, in terms of troops and armament that it has yet to bring to bear. Yeah. So uh, uh, today is the 19th day of our heroic resistance, uh, resistance by Ukrainian armed forces, and Putin never expected that uh, he, he he will he will find uh, such kind of resistance. And his plans his plan was to take Kiev in in or Kharkiv in, in in two three days. So, but that never happened. We still have enough power to protect ourselves. But from the other side, the uh, you know uh, the Russian troops are, are numerous, and they are bringing a lot of weapons to Ukrainian territory. So that's why uh, Ukrainian forces are in critical need of anti-tank weapons, air defense missile systems, ammunition, radars, and intelligence systems. So we we are really looking forward to get uh, uh, all this all these tools from other partners uh, and uh, again this discussion around mix cannot take too much time because if we will not get that assistance it will be too late if you do get the MIGs, um, no if if you do get the MIGs, sir how how will will it uh, will you be ready to fly them will you be ready to operate them will you be ready to maintain sure. them sure if you will get mixed we will we will close the sky uh, over Ukraine, we will be able to operate them, to fly with them, and we will b- be able to shot on, on missiles and protect Ukraine from the air, because right now we are quite good on the ground, and uh, but but the air side is still very weak, weak part of 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 our 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 resistance. So, Mr. Lubkivsky, give us the state of the talks that you were having with the Russian. Uh, counterparts there are is any progress being made how just give us a status report 
So, uh, you know, our negotiations with the Russians took place today and there was taken a technical break. So we will proceed to speak to them tomorrow. But other positions, uh, our positions remain unchanged. So uh, position of Ukrainian side is to establish, to achieve peace, immediate ceasefire, withdrawal of all Russian troops. After uh, and only after that we can talk about some some relations or political settlements. So I, I can say that at this stage there is no big big progress, uh, but uh, negotiations are ongoing. And as a diplomat, I, I still believe that the negotiations are the only way how we can solve uh, the and how we, we can protect Ukraine from the from the Russian uh, aggression. So you. Uh... You mentioned the uh, threat from the skies. Give us your thoughts or kind of the thinking within Ukraine and diplomatic circles about a no-fly zone. What does that mean to you, um, and how important would that be? It is important, but I'm, I'm quite skeptical because almost every day we are trying to, uh, to, to, you know, to close the sky over Ukraine. And uh, this is crucial for us because in that case, but in that case, we, can, we, can, uh, we also understand the the all the threats which are, are are coming with that for for nato for nato countries but from the other side uh, let me remind that yesterday uh, almost the border with the nato states was under attack because of of uh, missiles on the uh, peacekeeping international peacekeeping center uh, near uh, ukrainian polish border so nobody is safe now and i think that we are too late with the, uh, all these, you know, discussions to to close the sky. Or not. We should be very, very, you know, uh, tough in that. And but because what we will do if one day Putin will will uh, uh, will get a victory and he will appear and on the border uh, with the, with the NATO countries. And so uh, you know that's why we are really looking forward to 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 get more assistance. Can and to be brave, we need from from other partners to show how that they are brave as Ukrainians. Are. Can, can I can I just ask because we heard from a U.S. defense official, um, the Pentagon thought that it wasn't really clear if Ukraine did need additional fixed wing fighter aircraft like like the MiGs that Poland offered earlier this week. You're saying you definitely want those MiGs, yeah. you have the ability to use them, and you could create a no-fly zone yourself without NATO involvement if you had the equipment. Correct, correct. So, correct, absolutely. And if we can get a mix from one side and we can get all assistance you can you can provide us in terms to protect our sky, we will be able to protect Ukraine ourselves. So, Markian, from your perspective, again, day 19, what would be a victory for Ukraine here, realistically, given where we are right now? What would be a victory for Ukraine? <laughs> a very tough question, but uh, for us, the uh, victory will be then U Russian troops will leave Ukraine. Uh, uh, they then they will stop shooting on on other people. Uh, so I, I I'm uh, I'm optimistic in that regard. So I think that we will win. We will survive. We, we 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 are very motivated nation, and uh, I'm I'm impressed with uh, our army, which is uh, really good and uh, on the ground and uh, protecting other people. So, I think that the 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 uh, final final uh, victory 
will be then Ukraine will bring back other territories, including Crimea and the and the Donetsk and Lugansk regions. At this stage, this is not realistic. But from the other side, this is the this is the the points for discussion with the with the Russians. And uh, again, uh, we are we are absolutely focused on on negotiations. We we are not we are protecting ourselves. We are we are defending our countries. We are not attacking anybody. Right. So, and we we but we we, we need that negotiations. Uh, and I think that uh, that President right. uh, Zelensky was very clear in that, and uh, he's staying in Kiev together with the government with the parliament. Right. And we are ready to protect our capital. Markian Lubkivsky, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time and giving us the latest from Ukraine. Markian Lubkivsky, advisor to the Minister of Defense of Ukraine. Let's check in with Ted Smith. He's partner and president of Union Square Advisors. Ted, we came into the year and everybody was preaching volatility. Boy, were they right. What's your market call right here in the middle of March? Well, we think we're going to continue to see quite a bit of volatility yet, Paul and Matt, and thank you for having me today. But we also think that it's going to play itself out a little bit here in the first and the second quarter to where things will likely get a little calmer in the second half of the year, and we'll get back to what we hope will be a greater degree of normality. So is the Fed going to throw a wrench in those plans? I mean, is the Fed going to aggressively hike us into a recession, or are they going to turn tail and run at the first sign of real economic pain? I think they're going to be measured about it. I think they're going to try really, really hard not to drive us into that recessionary territory. Um, they've got a lot of conflicting signals out there between what's happening with inflation and, and prices across the board, certainly with oil that everybody with a car is feeling pain about. Um, but we're also seeing, you know, a lot of other factors, obviously the situation in Ukraine, um, various aspects of the overall economy are sending those mixed signals. So I think the Fed's got a pretty tough job to do, but I think job one is making sure that we curb inflation and job two is making sure that we don't work so hard that to your point, we, uh, we drive us back into re uh, recessionary territory. All right, Ted, given that backdrop and man, there's uh, many, many bricks in the wall of worry these days. Where are you and your partners at Union Square? Where are you kind of allocating capital these days? We're focused a lot. Uh, we First of all, we're a tech-focused uh, investment bank, so we, we focus primarily in that sector. In the tech sector itself, we're seeing a lot of activity continuing in cybersecurity. That's always a hot space, but certainly, again, with the threats uh, in and around Ukraine, we've seen even a, a greater surge there. We see a lot of work in and around customer experience management, customer engagement, given sort of the new reality of how consumers interact with brands. We're seeing a lot of work around healthcare and healthcare IT. Really, the rules of healthcare and IT have been rewritten as a result of the pandemic, and so we're seeing a lot of really new and interesting companies. And then, has certainly been the case over the past uh, two or three years, with no signs of baiting, a lot of work in and around fintech and next-generation banking and finance. Are those all good inflation hedges? Uh, I think they're going to. I think they're different, obviously. I think, uh, but I think generally they are sectors poised for growth. And as a result, if you think the right way to hedge against inflation, which we certainly do, is to invest for growth so that you can outpace that inflation, we think those are great sectors for ongoing growth. All right, Ted, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. We'll chat with you again. I first started learning about ESG investing, environment, social governance, probably a dozen years ago. 
talking to my institutional clients in Europe, and they seem to be first and foremost on that. But since then, it's just become all the rage in global asset management. Investors want to invest in ESG-friendly uh, uh, assets. Jonathan Maxwell, he does this for a living. He's the CEO and co-founder of Sustainable Development Capital. Uh, Jonathan, again, ESG is a big, big, fast-growing part of the institutional investor marketplace. But I kind of feel like First with the pandemic, and then now maybe with the war in Ukraine, it's kind of been pushed to the back burner. Just give us a status from your perspective of how this market is in terms of size and in terms of growth parameters. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on today. So we've seen a huge movement over the last 10, 15 years in sustainable investment. And one of the largest markets has been energy. There's been as much, if not more, investment in clean energy in the last 10 plus years than there has been in conventional energy. And we've seen that accelerate over the last two or three years. I think what's going on right now um, on a geopolitical front um, creates two um, uh, directions. One you know, is a realization that an energy system, which is 80 percent oil, gas and coal, you know, there's going to be now going to have to be a tremendous sort of rebalancing of energy sourcing in Europe and potentially in other markets in particular. That could be a short-term headwind uh, for clean energy. On the other hand, clean energy, and in particular, being more efficient with how we use energy, bearing in mind that we waste most of it. Um, but, you know, clean energy and energy efficiency, both very important parts of the sustainable investment model, I think are going to be um, you know, enormously important to the economies of Europe and indeed of North America and other markets. Yeah, I can't. Uh, I, I I can understand that. Um, you know, Americans are going to want to drill, baby drill, when they see the price at the pump, and that Europeans are going to be asking their leaders, "Why on earth did you make us so dependent on Russian gas?" Um, and, and you're going to need to see restructuring due to that. But it seems to me clean energy just has a, a huge tailwind. I mean, how many people are going to want to be installing their own, um, you know, solar panels and batteries, especially um, in Europe, as they face the very real prospect of their power getting cut? Right. Well, I mean, I think there have been sort of, I agree with you, and I think there are sort of three main drivers. And th these drivers, by the way, um, I think affect the United States as, as well as affecting Europe. And the three main drivers really have been about security, or resilience, cost, and carbon. I think and security in the United States has been a long-standing factor, of course, with, with weather, Superstorm Sandy, uh, Louisiana and Texas last year. So you know, weather, severe weather events have been big problems for energy resilience. But of course, now geopolitics has really crashed home here in Europe. So decentralized energy, generating energy close to or right where you need it. Mm. Um, you know, in, 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 in de decentralized, cleaner solutions, incredibly important. Second of all, by decentralizing energy, bringing it closer to where you need it, you lose less of it in generating it and transmitting it and distributing it. The way that we've built the global energy system is generally supplying energy into a centralized system. It creates incredible losses. There's an extraordinary number that where we're probably wasting between 60 and 70 percent of the world's energy somewhere through the points of generation, transmission, and distribution. So actually, to start with generating it closer to where you need it, it's more secure and it's actually cheaper. And of course, along with the loss of wastage, it also reduces pollution and carbon. 
So those are really the three main drivers. You know, it's lower cost, lower carbon, more resilient energy solutions. And that's really what we drive at with regards to sustainable energy investing, lower cost, lower carbon, more reliable, more secure sources of energy supply. So Jonathan, give us an example of maybe a recent investment you've made that kind of maybe goes to some of those issues. Yeah. So, I mean, in the United States, we have a portfolios of um, solar and storage investments that we've made where we're generating energy, solar power combined with storage on rooftops, carport, ground mount, where we can link it directly into end buildings. And it dramatically reduces cost and carbon. We've got in the United States investments where we're recycling uh, what would otherwise be pollution. So blast furnace gases coming off of steel mills and using those as the fuel to generate power and steam back uh, for, the, for, for the steel uh, facilities. In Europe, we have on-site generation um, using natural gas, biogas, um, uh, in, in, in due course, hydrogen, uh, ground and air source heat, uh, solar. Uh, all of these technologies can dramatically reduce the amount of cost and carbon involved with generating energy, as well as increasing the energy security. That's on the supply side. On the demand side, change the way that buildings industry transport use energy. 70% of the world's energy is used in buildings, industry, and transport. Most people think about energy as the grid. Think about the end user. Right. So buildings, industry, and transport can use better lights, better heating, ventilation, air conditioning. And of course, electrification of cars is a much more efficient way of driving cars, 75 to 80% efficient compared right. to oil from a well, 15 to 30% efficient. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, always love talking about sustainable investment. Lots of opportunities out there. Jonathan Maxwell, CEO and co-founder of Sustainable Development Capital. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.